Lord, these are academic words, but what they, what they remind us is how important it is for us to come to you and ask you what you have to say to us instead of us coming to you telling you what you should say to us. So help me, Lord, uh, communicate these truths to your people. Uh, speak through your scriptures from Second Peter 2 and 1, and then again from Jeremiah chapter 29. And Lord, if we have time, we'll talk, you know the plan, we'll talk from uh, one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians as well. Lord, I ask that this be your message for us, not my message for them. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what you would have us see, hear, and receive. And Lord, if there's anything I have planned to say, to talk about, to even instruct on, that you don't want said, I don't want to say it. But if there's something you want said, make it clear and that is from you, and I will speak it to your people. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. So we're going to be in, in, uh, in, in 1 Peter 2 first, uh, and that, excuse me, 1 Peter 3 first. And the reason we're, we're there is I, I, before we get to the explanation of these words and the opposite of them, I want you to see that the Scripture makes some claims about itself. Now, in two weeks, we're going to talk about inspiration and the authority of Scripture, and we'll, pro- we, we'll probably revisit a couple of these passages because Peter is very clear on, on what, what he believes Scripture is. Uh, so the Scripture makes some claims about itself. And here's the key to this word that we're going to be talking about at the end of the message, or in the middle of the message, called hermeneutics. Um, scripture interprets Scripture. So if you come to a passage, if you're reading the Scriptures, and you read in the Scripture uh, anywhere, and it's like, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know about that, or that seems kind of hard to understand, the first place to go to find out what the biblical witness is to other places in Scripture to see what the biblical witness is. So instead of me deciding what it means, I'm supposed to find out what Scripture tells me it means, and then from there, what, what impact does that have on my life? So here's uh, Peter talking, uh, and he says this, uh, Dear friends, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, talking about Jesus and life with Christ in the day of the Lord, um, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. Now, here's the key. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do with the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends... Since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Now, we're not going to comment too much on these, these, this particular passage, but I want you to know that the motive for talking about even these words, this whole meat and potatoes um, series, this this complicated theological ideas that we're trying to communicate to you in, in non-theologically uh, complicated ways uh, is, is motivated, not entirely, but in large part by this passage in, in 2 Peter 3. His, he's, talking about, he's talking about Paul's letters, and he says that, that Paul wrote these things the, from the wisdom that God gave him, not his own wisdom. And then he says, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand 
which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do with the other scriptures, to their own destruction. It is, in part, my responsibility to communicate clearly the truth of the scriptures to you. Now, I know that you read the scriptures yourself. I know that you, uh, and I trust that you, that you prayerfully go to God and ask him to show you his will for your life. But as one of the people, and I'm the one that's up here three out of four weeks, who's supposed to communicate the, the truth of the scriptures and the truth of the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ to you, I want you to know, desperately want you to know, that what you find here in the scriptures is from God. It's not from me. It's not just from people. It's wisdom that God gave them. And so it is reliable, and it is trustworthy, and it is true, and it is truth. And if we go to the scriptures and go, there might be some truth in it, well, that's true of Tale of Two Cities. That's true of even some of uh, Tom Clancy's books. This isn't just a book. It is the revelation of God. And he told us what he wanted us to know. So yes, there are some things that are sometimes difficult to understand. However, we cannot distort them. We need to, to, to seek even further the things that are difficult to understand so that we might understand what the Scripture tells us about that which, we, which is difficult to understand. I know it's a lot of word, a lot of repeating of the word understand. Second Peter 1, 16-21 says this, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power of our, uh, uh, and, and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw it themselves. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came down uh, from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy, so nothing that God has given to his people, no word from the Lord for any individual day, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is a claim that Scripture makes about itself. Now, there are others, and we'll talk in a couple of weeks more specifically about the claims that Scripture makes about itself and why the, why the church believes that it is reliable and authoritative in our lives. So that when we go to Scripture and we don't like what it says, it's not that we need to change the Scriptures to fit our will. It's we need to change our will and behavior to fit the Scriptures. If it comes from God, then we are it is authoritative, and we are not. If it comes from us or if it comes from people, then it's just good advice. It's not good news because news is something that has already taken place. Advice is something, hey, how might you act if one day this kind of thing might happen? So what are these words, exegesis and hermeneutic? Now, in order to describe what exegesis is, we have to use its alternative uh, eisegesis. So it's, it's going to be on the screen. It'll kind of go progressive. Exegesis means to approach Scripture to extract meaning, knowledge, or information that is already in the Scriptures. The ex of exegesis means out, out of or from. Eisegesis, which we are all 
all tempted to do, eisegesis, is to approach Scripture with our own ideas and inserting our meaning into them. The ice of eisegesis means into. So if you want to know the difference between these two, it's really this. It's another theological word that doesn't actually exist, but it's help me Jesus. When you approach Scripture, help me Jesus. Show me what it is that it means. Show me what it is that it means... If it, means, if it meant what it meant to the people that heard it the first time, it means what it means to me. And those meanings are the same. Hermeneutics just means to interpret. So the job of a preacher and the job of a Christian is to, is to do our best to find out what it meant, to the, what the author intended to say, what the author meant when he said it, what it meant to the people that first heard it, and then to, to, to make the move to now. So one way of looking at that is the, what, what's called the Reformed hermeneutic is what's called the historical contextual interpretation of the Bible. What did it mean to the author? What did it mean to the recipients in their context? And what does it mean to us in our context? And the meaning to us should be almost exactly of the meaning to them. And I'll give you some examples of where, where that might get, where that might be tougher than other, other places. But for the most part, if we believe that this is God's word to us, then he's right when we don't like it. We can't do what, what I call exegetical gymnastics to get the scriptures to say what I or our culture wants it to say. So here's an example. The journey is from them to us, not from us to them. And it is really tempting to take our experiences, our worldview, our cultural context, and put it onto the Scriptures, saying that we know better than they knew. So our experience is more authoritative than the Scriptures. That is very common. It is very difficult not to do. And sometimes it's very tempting. And it's, it's such that it's so insidious that we don't even know when we're doing it a lot of the times. So the easiest example I could think of is one that you've already heard me say. So I'm going to, and so it, Bob, where's Bob? Bob Vanderswijk. I'm sure that if you go back to 2016, you will see that we preached through, uh, we talked about this Jeremiah 29 passage. We were in, the, in a series called... Um, thriving in Babylon. This is right before the, 2000, or the 2016 presidential election. So, Jeremiah 29 11. We all, almost everybody knows this. It's stenciled on your wall in your kitchen or it's on graduation cards. It's for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Wonderful passage. And it is something that should give us comfort. Um, but but it, I, don't, I don't know that it belongs on a, on a, unless someone knows that bad things are about to come. I don't think it belongs on a graduation card. It should be stenciled. It's a great promise, and God did keep the promise that he made to the people of Israel uh, at the time that he made this promise. He fulfilled it 70 years later, which is exactly what he told them would be. So if we look at what did the author intend to say, and we look at... Um, what did it mean to the people at that time? Well, what, what did the author intend to say and what was going on? What was the context of the people at that time? Well, if you, if, if you interpret Scripture with Scripture, 
it tells you right here in the beginning of chapter 29. It says, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, that's a bit of a different context than the prosperity gospel that some people use this for. That God is going to give you whatever you want. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. I mean, who doesn't want that to be true of them? And of course we want that to be true. And, and, and it is God's desire. God, God continually uh, wants what's best for us. His desire is, even by giving us the, his, his word, is for us to know who we are and whose we are, and to be perpetually transformed. That's that, that sanctification, to be perpetually transformed into the person that God already sees us to be. So if we're justified, we cannot go to hell. If you're not justified, you cannot go to heaven. If you're sanctified or in the process of being sanctified, he loves you just the way you are. He refuses to leave you that way. The process by which he refuses to leave you that way is what we call sanctification. If, if, if Jesus accomplished anything in the atonement, it was to make us right with God, to make it so that we are declared, never declared, we are declared, it is declared by God that he will treat you as if you have never sinned. He knows the plans he has for us, and that is prosperous. It is not harmful for us to know, to, 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 to live in the fact that God declares that, as, that he will treat us as if we've never sinned. But Jeremiah 29, 11 was for people who had just been, Jerusalem had been destroyed. They had been unfaithful to God for years. In fact, so many generations that they had to pay for a year, or a, a, a year for every year of Jubilee that the people of God had never observed. Now, the year of Jubilee, there's a Sabbath year. Every seven years is the Sabbath year where you're not supposed to plant, and you're supposed to trust God for his provision. At the end of the Sabbath year, you're supposed to have this wonderful uh, people-wide celebration. The, the, the year of Jubilee was every seventh, seventh year. So you have a year where you do not plant and you do not harvest, and then you have another year, the year of Jubilee, where you do not plant and you do not harvest. And in the year of Jubilee, everybody was supposed to... Um, Rely on God completely, and any debt that anyone had for another was to be canceled. So every, basically every 50 years, all debts were canceled. All property that I might have sold in order to have the resources to do something was supposed to come back to the, the family of origin, the, the family that God had given that particular piece of property. So the people of God never trusted God enough to really observe Sabbath years and the year of, years of Jubilee. And so for every year that they did not, for every time they did not, uh, they did not observe the Jubilee year, God allowed them to go into exile. Now, I don't like that, but it's what happened. And this is what he says. This is a little bit more context. This is what the Lord says. This is to the people in exile in Babylon, having seen their holy city destroyed. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on my name and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with, your, with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places that I have, that I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. It actually means a lot more than we make this verse mean. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. When do you need hope? When it looks like there is none. So this is a verse to hang on to when God directs you into difficulty. Not when your life is in front of you and everything's wonderful and you just think God is going to continue to pour on one wonder after another. So it would be remiss as a preacher for me to perpetually remind you that, that God wants to prosper you. And he does, but he prospers you by growing you. His job isn't to make you or me more happy. It's to make you or me more holy. So the exegetical way of looking at this is simple. God speaks to his people when they need something to hang on to. So 70 years. And you know what, he, what else he says to them in, that, in, that, in, that, in this passage? We don't have the time to go into it all. But he says, if you prosper in the city of your captives, they will prosper. If you bless them, they will be blessed. So give your sons into marriage. Give your daughters into marriage and have them have children and have them give their sons and daughters into marriage. You're going to be there a while. Prosper. Now, what we don't know when we just read that passage and what we often don't know and what they didn't know back then is that God had a plan for the known world through the king, the demon-worshiping king Nebuchadnezzar. If you read the book of Daniel, you will see, which is this, this is, this is a, Jeremiah was speaking to the people as he sent, as Daniel was going in to, to work for and to be a, a, a chief interpreter for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a demon-worshiping king who hated the people of God. But God grew up Daniel, and he grew up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it went on and on and on to the point where Nebuchadnezzar had, a, had an encounter with God, and God turned him into a wild animal for a while. And after this demon-worshiping king, within these 70 years, ends up proclaiming to the whole known world in written form that there is only one true God, the God that the Israelites worship. So what's the context? What's going on with them? God gives them a promise that they're going to live for 70 years, and if they do it this way, he's going to hear them, he's going to, he's going to, he's, he's going to reward them, and he's going to bring them out. But God had a, something greater to accomplish in the midst of all this than just to prosper and not to harm his own people. It was to turn the world to God. So often when we look at the Scriptures and we have something that we wanted to say, and, 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 and often it's calling us to do difficult things. We read last week um, that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, you, you remember? We don't often in, in the United States, in Western civilization, we don't often look and believe that God allows suffering. Okay, we can live with that one sometimes, that he allows what he could prevent. But we don't often see that God wants some suffering in our lives. Not so that it harms us but often so that it heals us. 
And when people watch, God's people suffer and they see they don't give up their faith. God gets glory. I don't like it. But God knows better than I do. Let me give you another example of something that this, this whole, what, what did the author mean? How did the people hear it? What did it mean to them? So therefore, what does it mean to us? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm just going to tell you about this passage. I'm not going to read it. You're, you're probably familiar with it. Let me get this right. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 6. I'm sure that's a big memory verse, right? Women, when they're prophesying or praying in church, should keep their hair covered. Ugh. So those of you who just joined me in prayer, if you're a woman, you didn't have your hair covered, must mean that you've done something wrong. Okay, what did the author intend? That's Paul. How did the people hear it? Well, let's just look at it for a second. That was a patriarchal culture. Men, women, children, goyim, non-Jewish people. That's kind of the, the, the order. Who were the women that left their hair uncovered in that culture? Temple prostitutes. And women that had no husband and had to make a living by doing untoward things. So why would Paul tell women that it's, in, it's important for them to cover their hair? Well, part of it is honoring and submitting to their husbands. Now, the scripture's very clear, Paul's very clear, that we're supposed to submit lovingly to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5. Men, here's how you do this. Women, here's how you might do this. But one of the things that the reason women were to cover their hair was to, to show their honor for their husbands, that they belong to another. It's kind of like we would wear a wedding ring to say that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and spirit to my, to my faithful wife until death do us part. But there's another piece, because we might look at that and go, well, Paul should have countered that. It's another piece. In that culture, and I'm going to be very, very discreet, as discreet as I can be, but in that culture, for a woman to have her hair uncovered would be like me coming to church in a Speedo. You wouldn't be okay with it. You don't like it when I wear jeans. Which again is a cultural thing, not a scriptural thing. But Paul had to address it because to, in that day and age, they believed that there are parts of your body, parts of a woman's body that help a woman get pregnant. And when he talks in that passage just before that, like if you have shame that your head is shaved, one of the reasons that they would shave a woman's head is to make it so she could not bear offspring because they believed that the hair was part of the process. The hair being long and uncovered was necessary for pregnancy to ensue. So for a woman then to show up in church to have, and have her hair uncovered would be like a man showing up in a Speedo, it would have been distracting, it might have been erotic to some, but it certainly would have been shameful to her. So that's the content, that's what Paul was talking about, that's what the women and the men understood at the time. What does that mean for today? Modesty. Kurt and I were joking this morning about 
a funeral we both remember. We didn't specifically talk about this one, but there was a, f- a funeral that we did, and a woman stood up to talk about her, her, her departed father, and she was not dressed the way I would be dressed if I were going to stand up in front of people in a church service. And not only did she stand up dressed a little bit differently than I would have wanted if she were living by my standards, but she talked about things with no shame that actually are a little bit shameful. If I were instructing her on how to behave at a funeral, I would give advice similar to Paul's. I would say it is inappropriate to be trying to show everyone what you have here when you're trying to communicate how glad you were to have the dad that you had. And it's inappropriate to stand up and tell everyone about how you got away with certain exploits and your dad never saw. That is not the purpose of gathering to worship and to thank God for the life of your father. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, those verses around verse 6. So why, why, why these instructions? Why these examples? Because exegesis and hermeneutic matter. What did the author say? What did the original hearers hear? And if God wanted them to hear, if wanted that author to say that and wanted those hearers to hear that, he wants us to hear the same thing. The cultural context may be different, but the truth is universal. Does that make sense? Now, I use two easy examples. There are some that get, that get, that get real weird. But the other example I'll use about how, let me put it this way. There's arguments in different denominations where people, well, that's not what the Scripture said. Well, that's just your interpretation. Fair. It's just your hermeneutic. I was watching some news this week, and there were some people that, that are from different countries that speak different languages, and they needed an interpreter. Okay, so I do not speak French. Je m'appelle de Bruxelles. I'm as American as they come. I do not speak French. But my brother-in-law, Dominique, who I will see on Friday, does. He's from France. Now, if he did not know English, and he and I were to be in relationship with one another, we would need an interpreter. And if Dominique said something, even if it's idiomatic, it's just kind of a way of saying things in French that it wouldn't translate to English, the person interpreting has to know not only what he said, but what he meant in order to communicate to me so that he and I can be in relationship and have an understanding of one another. So if, you interpret, if you're an interpreter, you cannot interpret without knowing what was meant, without knowing what was said, and without knowing why and what context it's in. So to say it's just your interpretation is to say it doesn't matter what it meant. It just matters what you want it to mean. That is not biblical. It is not preaching. And it is not faithful. We must look at what God wants us to hear and bend our will to his. The other option just my interpretation, is to bend the scriptures and thereby try to bend God's will to mine. And we go back to Genesis chapter 3 and we see what happens 
when people say, my will, Lord, not yours. Big academic words, exegesis, eisegesis, hermeneutic. Just remember, when you go to the scriptures, help me, Jesus. Help me know what you mean. Help me understand that it means today what it meant then. What did it mean to them? Move it to me. Instead of, Lord, here's what it means to me. Now help me justify myself by making it mean to them what, it mean, what I want it to mean to me. It is absolutely crucial. I would be remiss and I'm going to be judged more harshly by God if I tell you anything other than that truth. What did the author mean? What did the original receiver, recipients or hearers hear? What did it mean to them? And then make the move to what does it mean to us? Let's pray. Lord, it is important to me that other folks with advanced theological training can utter an amen. So thank you for that little exclamation from Pastor Kurt. But Lord, it is much more important to me that you believe that what I told your people was true. Lord, I don't, I don't feel in any way that I misled them, believe I was faithful. But if I wasn't in any way, convict me of it, but wipe it from their memory so that they only hear the truth that you wanted them to hear. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of your spirit who lives within us for the glory of God our Father. Amen.